0: empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Just a quick thing before we begin today's podcast. Are unpleasant symptoms of digestion getting you down? Bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, indigestion, IBS, bowel dysfunction, SIBO, colitis? Well, we are now accepting new applications for our group physiotherapy program. To learn more, go to ecophysio.com forward slash group and submit an application and we will get in contact with you once we receive it to see if it's a good fit for our program. Welcome everybody back to the podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about lichen sclerosis. My guest today is Jacqueline. Jacqueline, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited and honored to be here.
0: I'm really grateful to have your time to, um, you know, get more educated and, you know, help other people who might be going through something learn a little bit more. So, you know, perhaps they have maybe an easier road or things that they can, you know, navigate forward, especially Mm -hmm. with this. But before we kind of dive into the topic, I thought maybe we should start off with
1: like, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I'm Jacqueline. I am the author and face behind the Lost Labia Chronicles, where I talk about all things relating to lichen sclerosis. Um, I am 35 years old, married, living in Toronto, Canada. Um, 2019 was a pretty big year for me. I received my PhD in philosophy of neuroscience with a focus on the role of systematic reviews and meta-analyses for corroborating information about the mind and brain across different disciplines. It's a bit of a mouthful, I know, but it really comes in handy when it comes to reading the medical literature on lichen sclerosis. That really helps me kind of work through what's a good paper and what isn't. Um, nowadays, I do work as a full-time data analyst and marketing manager for a small information services firm in Canada. And then, so I did say 2019 was a big year for me. So in addition to getting my PhD, that was also the year that I got diagnosed with lichen sclerosis. Um, And I got diagnosed finally after suffering for over 10 years, trying to get a diagnosis, trying to get an answer for what was happening in my body. But fast forward to today in 2022, I've been in remission for about a year and seven months now, um, which is just fantastic. And I feel so very blessed. And so now I spend a lot of time on my off days or my off hours, I guess, really trying to help educate folks about lichen sclerosis and provide support to others with lichen sclerosis.
0: And I think that's, you know, a great segue into can you tell us what lichen sclerosis is and you know maybe um oh i'm sure we'll get into like how it showed up in maybe mm-hmm. perhaps your journey but what other people might be experiencing that yeah so maybe we'll start with like what is like
1: in schools. Yeah, absolutely and that's a great question because it's a question that a lot of people have no answer to especially when they're first diagnosed they're like what what does this mean so lichen sclerosis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease that primarily affects the vulva and the perianal kind of region. So it, it isn't exclusively a genital condition, but it tends to affect the genitals primarily. And then some folks can get lichen sclerosis say on their arms, their stomach, etc. It's wildly considered to be an autoimmune disease that may have a genetic component, although they're still working on trying to understand and isolate those genes responsible. Due to the area that it affects, which is kind of our vulva, that anal region, it kind of is a disease that sits in between two two fields. So we have gynecology on the one hand because it involves kind of the genitals, but then we have dermatology on the other hand, because it affects the skin of the genitals. So it's very much a chronic inflammatory skin disease of the genital area. So there are two um, researchers, Dr. Kraft and Dr. Goldstein, who work out of the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C., and they've made a lot of progress with respect to understanding lichen sclerosis and how they explain it, which is how they understand the disease so far is that there exists a protein or a collection of proteins that sit at the basement layer of the vulvar skin and the body sees that protein and it identifies it as not self. So when the body identifies something as not self, it responds as if there is an intruder in the body that is potentially going to cause harm. Therefore, this triggers this kind of inflammatory response to attack the intruder. And that inflammatory response is what creates this sclerotic tissue, this hardened, thickened tissue that we'll get into shortly. And this inflammatory response is responsible for a ton of the different signs and symptoms of the disease, which we'll get into momentarily. Um, but I do think it's important to note that lichen sclerosis is a progressive disease. So if it's left untreated, your symptoms will worsen over time. So it's super important that however you choose to treat, you look at treating the inflammation because that's really what's causing all of your symptoms so that's kind of lichen sclerosis in a nutshell
0: that was so beautifully said first and foremost i was like (laughs) wow okay that i just that was really well said uh one thing that i a question that came up in my mind because we're talking about vulvar tissue and Mm -hmm. it's like a skin and genital i'm i'm curious do men
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So anybody, yeah, any, um, so it presents a bit differently with folks with penises. Um, so some of their symptoms are slightly different. Um, and I, I, believe that they treat in a way that's, that's different from females, um, with folks with penises, a lot of the time, um, they will actually treat by doing circumcision, um, so that's obviously not so much an option for folks with vulvas. So, but yes, it can happen. If you have a penis, it is totally possible to get it as well. So it's not just a vulva. The vulva is just what I know because that's what I am working with. And that's where my research kind of focuses.
0: Yeah. Great. No, thank you for, for, um, sharing that. Cause it just kind of popped into my mind and I was mm-hmm. like, I wonder
1: if they get, yeah. Action. So yeah any gender and any age um they used to say there was a bimodal distribution uh with vulvar lichen sclerosis where it was either super young children or like postmenopausal um folks but now they're realizing that that's not so much the case it's just that there's been a large amount of people that are just going underdiagnosed for a plethora of reasons so yeah any age any gender
0: I'm curious about like, what are some of the, what what were, I mean, either from your experience or your research, like what are some of the early, like what prompts people first and foremost to like seek medical care? Like, cause it said, you said it took 10 years to get a diagnosis, mm-hmm. but obviously there was something that was happening that prompted you to be like, oh, this doesn't seem right. Can you talk about maybe like early signs and symptoms? Cause you said it's progressive. So, mm-hmm. you know, what does that, what is the journey or what we would say natural history of, of the progression?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think what I'll do is I'll start with symptoms and signs in general, and then I'll address the progressive nature and kind of speak from my lived experience on what that looks like for me, because we all will have, you know, different symptom presentation, So with respect to symptoms, these are just the main ones. So itch is very common um, and your itch can be anything from mild and periodic to severe and persistent. And when I say severe and persistent, I mean, I talk to folks who wake up from the itch in the middle of the night. It is so intense that they cannot sleep and they have bled through their underwear because they are scratching so much i've I've spoken with folks that say they have holes in their underwear from the scratching and it's a really deep itch if you've had um, a yeast infection before it's 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 quite distinct once you've had both you're able to kind of say like this is a different kind of itch here um and it's also an itch that obviously will not resolve if you use any kind of yeast treatment um so that's a a good sign that maybe the itch you have might be not yeast related. Another symptom that is super common is dyspareunia, which is pain with sex. Um, And we can talk a bit more about pain with sex because that's a very big one and that can manifest in quite a few ways, um, depending on the individual. Other symptoms are bruising and blood blisters. And then there is vulvar pain, which varies from person to person. It could be like a burning pain, a stinging pain, or just like a a localized general kind of vulvar pain that you just don't really know how to describe. And then the last one that's really common is um, fissures and tearing. So the skin of lichen sclerosis is different than the skin of somebody without lichen sclerosis. Um, And this is all comes back to that inflammatory response. It causes a lot of inflammation and what it does is it causes the skin the, you know, so the inflammation, that protein is at the basement layer. And then at the layers in the middle and the top, those layers basically get really hard and thickened. So because they're super hard, now they don't have the normal elasticity that the vulvar skin would have. So if you think about a thick rubber band, if you're trying to pull it, you pull too hard, it's just going to crack. And that is exactly what can happen with lichen sclerosis skin. So that can be tearing and fissures. You can get these little micro fissures, or you can get a big tear. Tearing very commonly happens when people have penetrative sex. Um, but some folks, um, can tear just from moving the wrong way. They can go up the stairs and there is there, there we go. It tore. So it's very sensitive, the skin. So a lot of pain and a lot of itch are the, the main symptoms. And then the signs that your doctor will look out for, one is discoloration. So discoloration of the vulvar area, and that could either look like a general lightning. So an overall paleness to it that, you know, is, it's not just their skin tone. There's like a distinct lightning of the area, or there are um, white patches, white kind of thickened raised plaques that can be anywhere on the vulva. So those are definitely a big sign of this, is, this could very well be a lichen sclerosis case. Another sign is scarring and architectural changes. So scarring is just a word that they use in the medical literature to describe fusing. So I will talk a little bit about fusing because this is really important. And this is something that a lot of folks with lichen sclerosis have. And it's something that I never knew was possible. I didn't even know to look out for this because I didn't know that parts of you could fuse together, um, but they can. And this again has to do with that thickened skin. Basically, the thin becomes thick, hardened, and the texture changes. So you can have different parts fused together. Some common examples are um, people will have their clitoral prepuce or the clitoral hood confused to the clitoral glands. You can have fusing of the labia minora to the labia majora. You can have fusing around the vaginal opening, and then some folks even get fusing partial or complete over the urethra. Now, obviously that involves, you know, urgent action on the the part of the health practitioner, but these changes can be very alarming, both from a mental like I can't believe this is happening to my body. And it can also cause pain. So if there's scarring in the vaginal opening, then penetration will become more painful. If there is scarring on the clitoris, that can lead to decreased sensation, um, which, you know, kind of downstream causes issues with libido um, and whatnot. So the vulva will look different. And we all know that all vulvas are different and all vulvas look unique. But there is this distinctive color, discoloration and scarring and fusing that are just, you don't see that in a healthy vulva. So those are the main signs and symptoms. Now, I'll talk a little bit about how it progresses, but I'm mostly going to speak from lived experience here. So um, the symptoms and signs, you don't need to have all of these. So you could have itch, but no pain. There are some people with that or they have discoloration and scarring, but they have no symptoms and they actually find out they get diagnosed going for like a routine pap smear. And then the doctor notices a lot of fusing and white plaques and says, hey, are you itchy? And they're like, no, and they're like, well, I think you could have lichen sclerosis. So you don't have to have all of these. It presents differently in different folks. So, and that's important when we talk about progression because that means that someone's initial symptom could be different from somebody else. So in my case, my first symptom was pain with sex, and I didn't quite understand what was going on, um, but it was persistent. So I, you know, the first time I I, w- I wasn't too concerned. I thought I'll just bring this up to my doctor and see what they have to say. And um, you know, they kind of take your history, they look at your vulva, and yeah, no, you're fine. Um, okay, cool, I guess. I'm- just a weird little blip in the road and uh, we'll just move on from here. Um, But my pain with sex did get progressively worse and the pain kind of felt like burning pain, but there was also like a stinging pain that came afterwards. So after penetration was done, like for the rest of the day, it would feel like I'm burning. And when I would urinate, it would sting. It almost felt like I had a hundred paper cuts, all over my vulva. And then somebody was pouring rubbing alcohol on it is kind of how that felt. And then, you know, that kind of led into some other issues because when you have pain like that for so long, um, I also started to develop vaginismus, secondary vaginismus. I had hypertonic pelvic floor. So I had all these other issues, which would cause more pain with sex. And it just kind of fed into this cycle. But for like the first eight years, it was just this pain with sex and this feeling like there were paper cuts everywhere, which I learned later were fissures, but I didn't have the terminology back then because I had never heard of this before. And so I would go to doctor to doctor and they would say, you know, now there's nothing wrong with you. Um, you're fine. This is really just in your head. You just have to get out of your head, you know, calm down. I was told a number of times to drink wine before having sex, which I think is just a really irresponsible thing for a doctor to tell any patient. Um, I was also told, well, they're probably just too big for you. You're just really small, a bunch of these things. Is what I was told. But again, the pain just kept getting worse and worse. And I didn't understand how the pain could worsen when I was apparently okay down there. Now, when I finally got diagnosed, it took my skin having to go completely pale, like very, very off-white. And it took my labia minora had fused. I had a lot of clitoral fusing. So I basically had to get to the point where there were enough visual signs for the doctor to be like, Oh, something's wrong here. And I was like, I know I've been saying this for 10 plus years. So if you don't treat, you can, it can progress and it can start to scar more. So you can experience more fusing, um, more architectural changes. You can have atrophy. All of these things will just continue to change silently in the background. And, you know, the other piece to this is that we're not taught, or I I definitely wasn't taught to check my vulva. So I wasn't looking down there all that time. I never looked to see what was going on. So I didn't know. So unfortunately in my case, it was just progressing and things were fusing and things were changing. And I had no idea, so this can happen to folks if left untreated for a long time, Um, your symptoms can get worse and or the signs can get worse. And then another thing that can happen um, if left untreated is that if you have vulvar lichen sclerosis, you are at a two to 6% chance uh, risk of developing vulvar cancer. Now this risk significantly goes down if you're treating properly. But, and again, a two to 6% risk doesn't sound very high, but when you're told that it's very, very scary. Um, So that is one way that the disease can progress if left untreated. So that is something that's really important to note when we're talking about lichen sclerosis.
0: I had a thought just kind of come to my mind as you were saying, like we're not taught to check our vulva. Mm-hmm. And I and I was just thinking to myself how like culturally and like how how did this sort of happen? And I just remember I, you know, created a post on Instagram and I talked about like you should look down there. And it was interesting because I got backlash on that. Like, oh, you don't need to look down there. You'll feel something is wrong. And I and I would just I like I was kind of mind blown about how much like negative um, commentary, my, my post got about, you know, checking down there and like, and it was in context to like pregnancy again. And I wasn't even saying anything scary. I was like, Oh, like your vulva is going to change and things yeah. are going to change down there when you're pregnant. And you, you know, if you look, it might be a little bit more full or, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just like, it bought kind of boggled my mind that people were like, no, like, you don't need to look down there unless like something's off. And I was think and then what made me think of No, but you really should, because if you're not having symptoms, like you said, and that's what made me think, oh, like we need to look down there. Like, yeah, need to look, like you need to see what's going on down there. Like, what is there, right? Just from like a simple, like, how are you going to catch potentially vulvar cancer or something? Because you might not feel it until it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. What's going on down there. And it, so anyways, it just reminded me. And I just thought like, this is like, this is the kind of messaging, you know, and when practitioners are trying to talk about educating, you know, we're not trying to, you know, scare people into thinking about things. It's just like, Hey, if you don't know your body, how do you know if it's changing? Cause you might not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Feel it, right? Yeah. Um, so I just felt like this was a good public service announcement. Like you need to <sighs> check your vulva with them. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And um, I'm on the board for Lichen Sclerosis Support Network, which is a Lichen Sclerosis nonprofit organization, and they are currently working on a vulva check program to help folks not only with the physical aspect. So there's the physical aspect, i.e. Get a mirror good lighting how to get in position what to look for but they're also working to simultaneously address the mental health piece because even if we acknowledge that yes actually vulva checks are important and i can't believe you got that kind of backlash it's so frustrating to hear as someone that was literally like yeah but if i didn't if no one looked you might not get diagnosed uh, you don't always know when something is wrong. So, you know, but, you know, a lot of us are like, okay, so if we can acknowledge that, yes, the checks are important, it's one thing to acknowledge that it's another thing to do it and it can be very scary it can bring up a lot of emotions. There's a lot of things that certain people need to unpack around that. So um, the nonprofit is doing a lot of work to address kind of both sides to kind of normalize looking at your vulva, knowing your vulva, and you know these. Are, it's so important. It's so important for our health. But yeah,
0: yeah. And, and 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 thank you for and like thank you for the work that the organization is is doing on that piece because I do recognize that again from you know, there's cultural aspects, there's educational aspects, there may be trauma history, there may Mm -hmm. be, like, there may be um, reasons why people can't or don't want to check. So we do need to acknowledge it's that there may be barriers to that. And how can we um, identify and if there are like, maybe I do need to speak with somebody about it. Um, So I think that is really a, a critical piece to mm-hmm. add into that conversation for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm curious from your research because, you know, you went this like long sort of period of time not getting um diagnosed and I'm curious about like what is the testing that they like are are they is there testing available in the early stages? Cause I mean, you had to, there was like physical changes that prompted the physician to be like, oh yeah, that doesn't look right. But in that time period, could something have been like investigated? Are there tests for like how, do, how
1: does diagnosis happen? Yeah. Great question. Um, so to get diagnosed with lichen sclerosis, there are two ways that you can get diagnosed. One is through a clinical examination and the other is through a biopsy. Now biopsy is kind of gold standard. However, a lot of folks do not get biopsied and they just get diagnosed clinically. So a clinical examination basically will involve the doctor taking your medical history and your symptoms and then examining your vulva visually for any of those key lichen sclerosis signs. Pardon me. They may also take like a Q-tip and they'll kind of like poke around the vulvar area, checking for pain. And some folks might listen and be like a Q-tip, but for somebody that has pain with lichen sclerosis, that Q-tip to certain parts of the vulva will set off just like a scream. Like it is very painful. So they're looking for these things while you're getting examined. Now, if the doctor is not sure about lichen sclerosis they may opt to do a biopsy, Um, but there are some pros and cons to a biopsy, right? I mean, a biopsy, as you would imagine in the vulvar area is very uncomfortable. Typically what they do for a um, biopsy in the vulvar area is they do a punch biopsy. So this involves the doctor taking a kind of round, handheld object to kind of, you know, brace yourself here, like hole punch, a piece of your vulva. So they first, they will inject you with the needle. And then after that, it'll kind of numb the area. And then they go in with that instrument and they kind of take out like a circular piece. It's about four millimeters, um, that they remove. And then they send that to pathology with a note that there is suspected lichen sclerosis and anything else that they suspect. So a doctor might do this if they don't feel comfortable on the clinical examination, or if they want a differential diagnosis to see maybe is this something else? Is this dermatitis? Is this uh, like planus? You know, if they're not sure, or if they also want to check for precancerous or cancerous cells, that could be another reason um, to do a biopsy. So a biopsy will give you that confirmation of if you have it or not. But again, that's really a decision that needs to be made between the patient and the doctor. And you need to kind of weigh out the risks of, is this worth it or not? In my case, I had progressed so much, as you would imagine with someone that wasn't treating for 10 years, that the clinical examination was all my doctor needed. Um, so that is te- technically how you get diagnosed. But I want to go back to the other part of your question, which was like, what happens in those early stages? Um, so it, it is a bit difficult in the early stages, because you might not have those signs for them to see clinically, you might just have pain with sex. And painless sex, as you know, could be a number of conditions. So this makes it a little bit more challenging. Now, in hindsight, I look back and I, I see and I'm not blaming myself. I've let go of any blame that I used to hold towards myself. But the language that I was using mattered. And I was not saying I have painful sex. I was saying my vagina hurts during sex. The issue was I wasn't calling my vulva, my vulva. I was calling it a vagina. So when the doctors were examining me, they didn't spend much time looking at the vulva and they were just going to investigate the vagina, which looked healthy to them. So they were like, well, you're fine. Whereas maybe if I was saying, it feels like I have tiny paper cuts around the clitoral area. It feels like there's burning around the labia minora. It's very vulvar related. Maybe using those words would have clued doctors into the fact that this is a vulvar thing. And maybe they would have referred me to a vulvar specialist because I, um, during grad school, you kind of hop around a lot. And so a lot of the doctors I were seeing was just whoever was on call at the university that day, um, walk-in clinics on the weekend. So I also wasn't seeing anybody regularly. So there was these two pieces, right? There was, I wasn't seeing the same doctor time after time. And then there was the fact that I wasn't using the right language to identify the parts of my body that was actually, you know, in pain. And again, I've let go of any blame that I used to carry for that. I, you know, it's a two-way street health is a partnership and, you know, the doctor is also responsible. They could have probed and asked more questions. Like, can you explain the pain a bit more? Like, can you show me where it hurts? You know, they could have kind of Dug a little bit deeper as well. But I also think that, you know, I potentially could have got diagnosed earlier if I was using the proper terminology. And so I think this ties back to, again, the importance of vulva checks, the importance of knowing your anatomy. Because I didn't know when I got diagnosed, my doctor looked at me and, first of all, she instantly, she instantly was like, oh, this is like in sclerosis. And I was like, what? And then she was like, has your vulva always looked like this? And I realized that at 31 years old, I had no idea what I looked like down there. So I also had no base of comparison. Again, that's why it's important to know your body, know your normal, so that when something does change, you actually can flag this when it happens to your doctor, because we're all kind of asymmetric. We all kind of have different coloration and stuff, and that could just be your normal. So it's important to know that baseline so that, and again, when something comes off, I could have maybe you know, pointed out to them like, okay, yeah, but my labia minora is fused and they weren't fused before. So, you know, those are the two ways that you can get diagnosed. Early diagnosis are always going to be a bit challenging because there's not going to be as many signs. And, you know, I'll, there's also the fact that a lot of doctors still don't know very much about lichen sclerosis. So that's another thing that, you know, we need to kind of keep using our voice to raise awareness. So people know what they should be looking out for both on the patient and the provider side.
0: And I am, you know, and obviously like deciding to go right in for a biopsy is not something the doctor's like thinking we do that first, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're going to try to obviously rule out all sorts of other things. Like make sure it's not like an STI, make sure it's not like, uh, you know, from a yeast infection or, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I assume that they're going to kind of you know, when you're not seeing the typical signs and symptoms, they're probably going to look at, okay, some other things. Um, And and I guess, you know, in the early phases, it sounds like really advocating, right? For yourself, like educating yourself, advocating to just be like, no, there's there's still something, you know, going on. And I wonder, you know, if it would be, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, I wonder in these cases, like, because it, it's not a normal, it's not normal practice for us to kind of keep track of her medical stuff. Like, right. We just put it yeah. into a file. And, and, and so then if you're seeing other practitioners is one thing, if you're like going to the same doctor, they have mm-hmm. your file there. Um, but I wonder if it's like helpful, uh, for people to ask for copies of test results and things in the event that, Hey, I'm going to a different physician, you know, I have these results, you Mm -hmm. know, but there's still a, still a problem. Like, I I don't know if that would have been helpful, but it might, I I
1: definitely think it could have been helpful. I definitely think, I mean, that's something I do now, um, for all of my health conditions and just for health in general, I kind of keep that information, but I feel like it's something that we're not taught to do. And it's something that we kind of learn to do when we are chronically ill, That's when we start keeping tabs. That's when we start realizing the importance of records, especially if like myself, you're moving around a lot. And then this also is with the biopsy piece is like the biopsy is confirmation that you have lichen sclerosis. And that can be really important too. So again, like I said, pros and cons, right? Because right now I'm in remission. Remission Clinical remission means that a doctor looks, examines the vulva and sees no more active lichen sclerosis. It means that the vulva has returned to a good, healthy looking texture. So my doctor even tells me every time he's like, your lichen sclerosis is so well managed. He's like, if I wasn't your doctor, I would have no idea that you had lichen sclerosis. Except maybe because you can't get rid of the fusing. So the fusing and the resorption, that does not go away, unfortunately. So I do have that. He's like, if it wasn't for that, I'd have no idea. So what happens is some people they get diagnosed clinically, they treat, it gets into remission, they move to a different province, they move to a different state, they go to get their refill of their treatment, and oh, the doctor doesn't want to prescribe it because they say you don't have lichen sclerosis, your vulva looks fine. So that can be a frustrating part, and that's when it can be nice to be like here's my biopsy result, biopsy confirmed. But even if you don't, again, have that record of the clinical examination, have that record of the doctor will put down, you know, these were their symptoms. This was the signs, blah, blah, blah. Like you have that record. You can still bring that to a doctor. If they want, they can connect with that doctor and see, but yeah, definitely. I think it's something that can help is to keep track of your records for sure.
0: Which then, It's one of the questions I was going to ask later, but I'm going to ask it now about like typical medical treatments, because you were saying, Mm. oh, I don't have symptoms, but I'm trying to get a prescription refill. So I'm just curious about like when you get the diagnosis and there's treatment, like a, what's the treatment look like? And do you stay on that? Like, is the treatment protocol something that you now continue forward even in remission or what does that piece look
1: like? Mm-hmm. So, the gold standard treatment for lichen sclerosis is topical corticosteroids. A very common one that you'll hear um, is clebatazole, but there are a lot of different types that you can have. Like there's, um, there's a site that breaks down each steroid by potency level. So, we're using ultra potent, but there's also potent and mid potent and all of these different ranges. But typically they're treated with ultra potent topical corticosteroids, which have been proven to statistically, you know, they show a statistical improvement of that inflammation. So we really see a sharp decrease. That's why it's considered the gold standard. Um, Second line are something called calcineurin inhibitors. They work very similar to the topical steroids, but they don't, they're not a steroid. Um so they also will have this immunosuppressant action. The reason they're not prescribed as often is because they can really burn and really sting. Um so doctors tend to not want to prescribe that because it's just so unpleasant for the patient and then the patient is less likely to be compliant with their treatment. And then there are other treatments such as platelet rich plasma, laser, phototherapy, etc. But the research right now doesn't really support um, the ability for these treatments to actually have the impact that we want. So a lot of people have these treatments and they say like, yeah, it really helped my symptoms. But for example, like with the laser, they'll report that their symptoms are better, but the inflammation on the pre and post biopsies for the study show that the laser didn't actually reduce any of the inflammation. So that's why those are kind of considered Alternative treatments, and they're not kind of the gold standard go-to because they haven't yet shown to have that inflammation-reducing effect that we really need to control the disease. And then, of course, there are other kind of complementary treatments that you can add on, which are things like diet and nutrition, support groups, therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, dilators, topical hormones, emollients, stress reduction, etc. Those are things that you can kind of add on to those main treatment plans. And, um, yeah, so for anybody listening, I do have a free ebook that dives into all of this in detail. I kind of break down all of the medical literature on each, um, treatment option. So if anyone is interested, you can get that at loss slash ebook. If you want to kind of deep dive into that, this is just kind of like a general overview. And then yes, you are correct. Once you start treatment, treatment, as of right now, is for life. You basically start uh, using your steroid once a day, and then the goal is to kind of get you into a maintenance treatment, where you're typically going to be using it two times a week, and that's ongoing for life. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm in remission, and that in addition to just, you can be in remission and have symptoms, by the way, it's a little bit confusing. Um, but I'm in remission and I actually do not have any symptoms anymore. And I haven't for a year and seven months. And I'm super grateful for that. Despite that I continue to use my steroids. I use it two times a week, very small amount. I apply it. I take my bath. I get out, pat dry. I rub it in for 90 seconds and then I move on. And the reason that I do this is Right now, the literature strongly supports the importance of ongoing treatment in order to keep the inflammation down and in order to keep the disease from progressing. And also in order to reduce the likelihood of the lichen sclerosis developing into vulvar cancer. So, and of course, that's a really big thing that we want to be mindful of. So yes, ongoing treatment for life as of right now who knows what the future has in store. Maybe one day it'll be like a pill that we take and that's it. But that's where we're at right now. Okay. Thank
0: you for that clarification. And also to anybody listening to access um, her uh, ebook, we will put the link in the show notes as well to make it easy for you to uh, gain access to that. So, I mean, we obviously talked about like, physical impacts of Mm -hmm. the disease uh you know fusion and changes to the tissue and tearing like the signs and symptoms from the physical perspective but i i want to talk maybe a little bit about because you mentioned i mean sex and Mm -hmm. so that's going to be you know we need to acknowledge that that is not necessarily just a physical act that Mm -hmm. it encompasses much more and maybe speak to also some of the mental impacts of you know dealing with this, that again, you know, I think we need to acknowledge these other parts of us, that it's not just a physical thing. We're a human being with feelings and emotions and we want connection and intimacy and we want to live our lives and Mm -hmm. have good body image and feel good about ourselves. So can you speak a little bit to, you know, some of the impacts this may be having that you hear maybe often in support groups or experienced yourself, um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that for anybody sure. who might be experiencing can be seen, heard, validated that these things are occurring. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it, it's so important to feel seen and heard like, so important. And I often say that I think, and it, like the physical symptoms can be really bad. Um, so, this is saying a lot when I say that sometimes I think the mental, the mental, you know, effects, the mental impacts are even worse it's a really hard disease to get diagnosed with because it impacts all facets of your life. So it impacts your sexual life insofar as um, if you have a lot of fusing around the clitoral area, you may experience um, decrease in sensation. Some folks have complete loss of sensation, especially when there's it's just a complete covering um, and that requires surgery. So that's a whole big ordeal and to, to lose sensation that also kind of comes with a a lowering of libido. And then this can have, you know, impacts on your identity, like how you identify as a sexual being that will impact your relationship, regardless of if you're in a partnership or not. Um, If you are, you're worried about how that's going to impact your current relationship. And if you aren't, then you worry about dating. You worry about how is anyone going to want to be with me? Um, and then you have pain with sex due to all of the tearing and that can be really distressing. And then you start to want to just avoid it altogether and kind of just hermit away. Um, so, you know, the pain with sex and the loss of sensation and the ways in which that can kind of impact relationships can really take a heavy toll on you and your relationships. And then when we talk about like the mental health impacts, you it's just basically all of the emotions, right? There's fear. There's fear about developing vulvar cancer. There's fear about what does this mean for my life? My quality of life. There's anger. Why did this happen to me? There's anger at the health system because a lot on average, it takes five to 15 years to get a diagnosis. That's a long time for a medical system to tell you you're fine, just relax and, you know, dismiss us. So there's a lot of anger that can be, you know, building towards the medical system, towards your own body. Um, there's sadness and depression. Um, and again, this all can kind of tie into the sexual part as well, right? You might become really depressed because now your sexual relationships are suffering and, you know, they, they all kind of interconnect. And then one thing that I'm really passionate about speaking about is grief, Um When we talk about lichen sclerosis, we often talk about anger and sadness, but something that I never really saw being discussed was grief. Um, And I think that with lichen sclerosis, it's something that a lot of us go through. Um, A lot of us grieve in very different ways. And I think for me, I definitely went through a long grieving process and I didn't even realize at the time that I was grieving because for me, grief meant that I lost something that I knew very deeply. That's what, that's what it meant for me. Um, and so I found myself grieving my lost anatomy. I mean, I call myself the lost labia chronicles because I lost my labia <laughs> um, to the disease. My labia menorah is just uh, in a different world now. Um, and so I, I really had to to grieve the loss of that, but it was such a peculiar grief because I was grieving something that I never really knew. Right. Like, And some people grieve Uh, their loss of anatomy because they knew that part. Well, right. Some, some folks are really familiar with their vulva and to see their vulva change like that can be very scary and very sad and very, you know, so they grieve that loss. But for me, it was like, how am I grieving? It was almost like I was grieving the vulva that I thought I would have or something like that. It was just like a very strange, very unique kind of grief was coming in. And then, other folks will have grief with respect to to motherhood. Um, So I have a project on my website called the grief project. And I opened this up and I asked for anybody that wants to discuss their experience with lichen sclerosis and grief to do so, because I kind of wanted to shine a light on the spectrum of grief and all of the ways, the different facets of how it can kind of play into our lives. And so there are some mothers who say, you know, I grieve the mother that I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be, you know, in the pool with my kids and, you know, running around playing soccer, but I can't go play with them because I'm in so much pain and, or others grieve the person they thought that they would be in their relationship, you know, grieve that loss of that sexual identity that you created over time. So grief can kind of play in on so many different ways. And so, yeah. I mean, there's just, there's, there's a lot to process emotionally, uh, and spiritually with this disease. Cause it can be very heavy to kind of work through those and to work through them alone because lichen sclerosis can be a very isolating disease due to what it affects, right? If I have strep throat, I have no shame telling somebody I have strep throat. I'm taking penicillin. My throat is burning when I swallow. God forbid I tell somebody that my vulva is burning when I pee no we don't discuss that so it can be really isolating because there's a lot of shame that people have so shame is another one i actually felt a lot of shame about how my vulva looked i had like really bad dysmorphia like i felt disgusted in what my vulva looked so it's just like there's just there's so much for us to to process and again because of what it's affecting love us feel like we can't speak openly about it so this is all of these emotions are kind of being they're just bubbling on the inside and they're not you know, we're not able to put those out into the world. So that can be really challenging.
0: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's like down there is like down there and we don't go down there. We don't mm-hmm. talk about Bruno is in my head right now. Yeah. yeah. From, uh, the movie, my kids watching, Encanto. Uh, in Canto. it's like a big, big thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we don't talk yep. about Bruno. Um, <laughs> but we need to talk about Bruno. So yes. there, there you go. If, you, if, if you're a parent and I've heard it enough, I apologize that I'm bringing it into this conversation as well. Um, but we need to talk about these things uh, in a safe space, right? And, and I think that's kind of part of what your mission is, is to create a safe space and peer group um, so that individuals can come together and, who are also experiencing this um this uh, condition and and the impact so that there's like a space for holding the emotion and, you know, being seen and heard. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, I mean, we've sort of talked about, um, you know, how this can have impacts. We've certainly talked about, you know, um, the challenges and the difficulties, but I'd like to switch gears now and talk about like hope Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, can individuals have a meaningful, can people live a meaningful life? And, and, you know, what are some tips or some things that have
1: helped you in the, you know, healing journey? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, great question. And it's a great question. And it's a tricky question. Um, and it's something that I always kind of struggle with when talking about acceptance and hope, because I don't want it to be this idealistic, dream kind of thing. And I also want it to be a kind of grounded sense of acceptance and hope. Um, I don't want it, you know, to be a toxic positivity kind of infused acceptance and hope, because that can be very invalidating. Um, Yes, we want to find acceptance. Yes, we want to find a way to live a life full with values and joy. But I think sometimes we skip some steps along the way when we try and just get to that end part. And I think a big part of finding acceptance starts with really feeling and acknowledging where you're at to sit with the grief, to sit with the experiences that are the sensations that trauma brings up, to sit with the, the fear and the anger and the blame, sit with all of those and process all of those. And that takes a lot of time. And when it comes to processing, we're all different. Some of us are kind of internal processors, some of us are more external, um, and we all have different ways that we process this. Um, So I think it's important to kind of find what works for you. Um, I think it's really important after sitting with them for some time to get it out of the body. Like I said, we're so isolated with this disease. We're so closed. We internalize so much. And I think it can be really important to get it out of the body. Now, not everybody is ready to speak to other people, and that's okay. Getting it out of the body doesn't necessarily have to mean use your words and speak them. It can mean dance it out, it can mean shake, it can mean, you know, just moving the body to kind of move some of that through you um, because it just kind of stagnates in us. And, you know, let's get that stagnant energy moving again. So I think that can be really helpful. And then when we talk about acceptance to think about it as more of a, this is okay. This is okay. I can work with this versus a, this is fantastic. And I love this yay. Like in sclerosis, um, that's not the kind of acceptance that I'm kind of talking about for me. It's more, I'm okay with this. I've, I've, I've come to terms with this and I found a way that I can still live a life that aligns with my values. There are still pieces of joy in my life and I'm okay with this. And also being okay. Doesn't mean you have to always be okay. You can still be in a place of acceptance and have a day where you're just like, I hate this. This sucks. Like not again, or I don't want to do my steroids tonight or just, you know, something like that. Um, So I think it's really just trying to foster a grounded kind of acceptance that feels right for you. How I define acceptance won't be how you do, but you just want to find that kind of healthy, grounded type of acceptance. And something that really helped me get to that place was going through a program at one of the hospitals in my city, um, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And that was We met weekly with a group of people. This was not for lichen sclerosis. It was for people with chronic pain. I was actually there for trigeminal neuralgia and degenerative disc disease is what first brought me to this program, but they really gave me all of the tools that I needed to kind of work through and process some of this. We did a lot of work to like identify what are our values. So, and then how can I still have this value in my life? while still acknowledging that I have this condition because we can't change that. I can't get rid of my lichen sclerosis. I have it. So how can I still make my values come into play? So a quick and easy example would be like, you know, I want to be intimate with my husband. Okay. But right now I can't because I had to stop having penetrative sex for like a year. We put that on pause because I just couldn't. So then it was like, okay, so Let's look at exploring what it means to be intimate. Let's look at what it means for me to be a sexual being. And let's try to undo and unlearn a lot of the stuff that society's taught me about intimacy and what it means to be a sexual being and all of this. And, okay, what can I do in the meantime? Well, we can kiss, we can cuddle, we can engage in oral sex, we can bring toys into the mix, we can play and experiment and have fun. So this is a way for me to acknowledge where I'm at, i.e. I cannot physically have penetration right now, but I want intimacy with my husband. So here are other things that I can do in the meantime. And again, this also will involve some processing because then you have to get over the fact, well, not get over, but you have to kind of come to terms with the fact that you have to make these modifications in the first place. So there's a lot of way that we can modify what we do in order to bring our values into our life. But you might be really frustrated that at the age of 31 years old, you're sitting there with a dilator in bed that's the size of your pinky. And you're like, why do I have to do this? I'm 31 years old. Or, you know, I shouldn't have to reconsider how I have sex. Like, I should just be able to do it. Or I don't want to have to bring coconut oil with me everywhere so that I can walk or, you know, we have to kind of come to terms with this, but so act uh, acceptance and commitment therapy and pain therapy and really educating myself was a big part of my healing journey. Sex therapy was also a massive part of my healing journey. I definitely had a lot of mental hang-ups with sex that I needed to work through. um, And I wanted to speak with someone that, you know, really knew the landscape of sexual dysfunction and sexual disorders and stuff like that. I absolutely could have seen a regular therapist, but I really was like, my whole focus right now is about the sex piece. So I want someone that can help me move through that. So she really helped me move through the initial stage of like, dysmorphia and disgust. Like I felt so gross down there. So she really helped me work through that. She helped me work through, um, some obsessive tendencies that I developed, uh, such as over checking. So I went from never checking my vulva to checking it over 50 times a day, trying to see if there was any changes. And this was very distressing for me. So she really helped me work through that. And then I think the final thing was finding a community, finding others with lichen sclerosis that know what I'm going through. They understand when I talk about that unique kind of grief, they understand that they understand what it's like to, you know, have something that you can't talk openly about with everyone. They really understand. And you, again, like you said, you get to express how you feel in a safe space. And for like the first time for so long, you get to feel seen and heard by other people and connect with other people. And then these people are gonna be your friends. They're gonna support you. They're gonna give you advice when you need it. They're gonna say, I hear you when you're frustrated. They're gonna give you some tips sometimes. Oh, hey, I know what to do for this. Try this product. Um, So I think finding community again is a really, really important thing. Um, And that was kind of the the final piece of my healing journey was really just starting to connect with other people with lichen sclerosis.
0: Yeah. In, you know, in my training, we talk about like, yes, there's the individual work that we do, like Mm -hmm. maybe working individually with a therapist. Then there's the work that we do at home, whether that's like bringing in meditations or affirmations or mind body practices, there's like an Mm -hmm. individualistic aspect to our healing journey, but then there are things that need to be done in relationship. We are social beings And when we engage relationally in a safe environment, it stimulates our social engagement part of our nervous system that actually helps to facilitate growth and health and well-being. Um, And then there are hard emotions that even if we sit with them, we also have our own self-protective mechanisms that will only allow us to get so close to it before Mm -hmm. our, our defense mechanisms come in. So we do need other people who can hold space for us so that while we're sitting with an emotion, we can go a little bit deeper than what we were able to do on our own because we are in a containment in a relational experience with somebody else. And, and so that relational piece of healing, uh, I think is extremely important and often overlooked, right? So when we mm-hmm. think of our medical system, it's like, I'm going to see this doctor and it's going to be like me and this other person. Whereas there is this mounting, um, evidence coming in that like, we really, there's tremendous benefit to group healing.
1: mm mm-hmm. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. There's just, you know, I think both are important, right? Um, there's some work that needs to be done individually and on our own. And then there's some work that we need other people to hold our hand and to, to be on that journey with us. So I think really combining the two, um, can be really, really healing. And if I can actually just say one thing about the hope piece, um, for anyone listening, My case was really bad when I got diagnosed, Um, really, really bad. And I thought that I would never be able to have sex again. I I even told my husband, we're taking sex off the table. This could be years. This could be forever. Um, I just didn't think that I would ever be able to have pain-free sex because it had always been at the very least just like uncomfortable. Um, But now I'm almost two years in remission. I have no more symptoms at all. And actually, um, on the 14th was the, like my one year anniversary of being able to have sex again. Um, I can now have pain-free pleasurable sex and it is the best sex of my life because I'm finally treating myself and I've gotten to know my body better. And, you know, I've really come into myself in that way. So, you know, all of these things that I never thought would be possible They are. This doesn't have to be a death sentence. It doesn't have to be no more sex. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but that journey might be long, right? It took me a few years to really get to this point. I did a lot of work, did a lot of mental health work with my sex therapist. And, you know, I really just threw myself into the support groups and different LS communities and all of this. So it took a lot of work. I worked with dilators and pelvic floor physical therapists, but they're there is hope. It's just, you know, it might take a little bit longer than a month. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And thank you, you know, for sharing that piece on, uh, on the hope and, and sharing just also how much, you know, how much you had to put in and acknowledging that also there's that anger and frustration around needing to do all of that work. Mm -hmm. Um, so acknowledging that, that part as well. Um, and I just, I'm really thankful and grateful to you for like sharing openly and having this discussion, um, because it's so important because mm-hmm. there, you know, there's people who may be on this journey who, you know, just don't know where to look or don't know where to turn or just don't even maybe have a grasp on, like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to ask or even say to my physician. So mm-hmm. even from that perspective, maybe, you know, this, this is, this is going to impact somebody's life. And so I just want to acknowledge, you know, the bravery and the vulnerability and sharing your story, um, and just the gratitude for, um, educating us about this. I wanted to ask, because I'm sure people are going to be like, you know, how, where can I find you? Where can I follow you? I mean, we talked about the ebook and so that's going to go into the show notes, but mm-hmm. you know, where else, um, can people interact with you?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can find me on um, Instagram is where I'm most active, but I'm also on Facebook and TikTok at the Lost Labia Chronicles, all one word, all lowercase. I also have a YouTube channel and we can have the link in the show notes, um, or you can just search me, the Lost Labia Chronicles on YouTube. And then you have my website, which is www.lostlabia.com. That's where I have the blog. There's the YouTube videos. I have a whole resources page for support groups and Anything, you know, resource-wise, like in sclerosis, as well as the free ebook, you can find that all on my website. And if you want to email me, I am Jacqueline at losslabia.com Thank you
0: very much. And like I said, all of those um contact links and everything will be in the podcast description. Uh, so that you know, if you're not sure about spelling or what was that and where 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 can I find you, it'll all be there for easy access. Jacqueline, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on as
1: a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned already so much. So I, you know, (laughs) I,
0: I, I selfishly benefit from, you know, chatting with people, uh, to, you know, continue my learning journey. So thanks for that. And of course, thanks to our listeners who join us in every single week. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast because every week we're having a different conversation and Hey, might learn something that you didn't know about uh so be sure to not miss out on episodes so so hit the subscribe button and share this out even if you're like well i don't know if i know anybody or with this condition you know sharing it out you again it's silent and awfully often isolating so people are probably not going to share their struggles so just sharing out you know this episode you don't You never know what impact you might be having on somebody's life. So hit that share button and we will connect with everybody on the next podcast. Wishing everybody a wonderful day. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again until the next episode. Bye for now.